Thank you very much. Appreciate that. We want to welcome you, of course, this morning to our uh, chapel, the beginning of a new week, and uh, we believe God has some great things in store for us today. It's our privilege to have a guest speaker. As you know, usually on Monday I like to shoot at you, but uh, you're going to get a little break, welcome break today as we have a very special servant of the Lord with us. A few years ago I happened to be on a boat in the Caribbean, and uh, I was speaking on that boat along with another man by the name of Dr. Larry Crabb. That's the first time we ever met, and uh, in the intervening years the Lord has continued to bless his ministry. Uh, he is a psychologist and uh, a counselor, and in my judgment, has the finest approach to biblical counseling that I know anything about. Presently, he has a program at Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana, where he uh, and another gentleman and uh, a staff of folks are offering a Master of Arts degree in biblical counseling. If any of you are interested in um, graduate training, you ought to try to get into that program. It isn't easy. They have about 250 applicants each year. They can take about 54 students. So uh, it's a marvelous program. But God has especially used Dr. Crabb in many ways. One of them that helps all of us is in his writing ministry. Uh, one of his early books, Effective Biblical Counseling, has been a great help to many of us. Two more recent books, one called The Marriage Builder and a book on encouragement, are uh, excellent books to give you insight into the whole matter of biblical counseling. And he's writing another one right now that we'll soon be hearing of, I'm sure, within the next year. So it's a great privilege to have from Winona Lake, Indiana, and Grace Theological Seminary, Dr. Larry Crabb, come, brother, and minister to us. Let's welcome him today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity of being here. I very sincerely do, because it's evident that God is doing something in your midst. And to have the chance to be where the action is for a little bit is a real thrill, and I... I'm very glad for it. As we start, let's bow once again and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, our desire again, as always, is to make much of our Lord Jesus. Our desire is to enter under the authority of your word and to understand the life that's ours because of him. Father, I believe, and all of us here believe, that you've called us to a different kind of life. And yet what we live sometimes doesn't reflect the life that's ours. And I pray that you'll use our few moments together this morning to understand more of what is ours because of Christ and how to live out that life that he died to give us. Bless, we pray, as we consider together things from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, as we start, and turn to Jeremiah chapter 6, the sixth chapter of Jeremiah. And I want to read a very frightening verse. Jeremiah chapter 6, and I want to read two frightening verses, actually. God, through his servant, in Jeremiah chapter, uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, is speaking to the leadership of the nation, or speaking about the leadership of the nation. And I would suppose that most in this room, God is going to use in some leadership capacity. Listen to God's comments on leaders in that day. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 13. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. Their motives are impure as they lead God's people. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. The NIV has it, that they have dressed the wound of my people as though the wound were not serious. Saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
Some time ago, a man came to see me, about 25, 26 years old, in my professional capacity as a counselor. He was a good-looking fellow, was going to a very fine, evangelical, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church, and he sat down in my office for the scheduled appointment, and I began with my usual incisive question, how can I help you? And he responded by saying, well, I have a problem, and I had assumed that was the case. And he said that my problem is somewhat strange, and I hope that you don't uh, laugh at me or mock me for my problem. It's a little bit different. My problem is that every time I see a sharp object, a pair of scissors, letter opener, knife, whenever I see a sharp object, I feel an almost, not quite, but almost irresistible urge to pick up that sharp object and to plunge it into the stomach of whomever is nearest. Now, what do you do? First thing you do is you look on your desk. <laughs> Get your priorities straight when you counsel. Survival is an issue. What do you do with that? That's a little bizarre, isn't it? I wonder if we were all to share, which we should not do, but if we were all to share bizarre urges that we've experienced in our own lives, I wonder what sort of things would be said. We'd look at each other very unusually, when we heard what somebody else was thinking until it was our turn, the stairs would then be directed towards us. First time I had a chance to go skiing a couple years ago. I was on a, on a chairlift going up the side of the mountain. And as I was halfway up, it occurred to me, wouldn't it be something if I were to do a swan dive into the snow? And I could picture the folks behind me in the chairlift watching my graceful swan dive landing in the snow and kind of give me a round of applause. Nice dive, Larry. Good job. And I thought, Crab, you're losing your mind. You need help. What do you do with that sort of thing? Is there a biblical way to think about that kind of problem? Or is that something reserved for the professional psychologist? Are the scriptures closed about some of those unusual problems that we struggle with in our lives? Or do the scriptures speak adequately, sufficiently, comprehensively to the problems in our lives? A student came to me just two weeks ago, 21-year-old young lady, and she said that all her life, she's been a nervous sort of a person, but just in the last month or two, she's developed what she labeled severe anxiety attacks, panic attacks that would come on her for no apparent reason. She told me the very first major one that she had occurred just a few months ago sitting in a theology class at Grace Seminary. Now, I had been to that class, and I understood something about the reason for that kind of an attack. She told me it also occurred that she was driving her car uh, from Chicago to the East Coast, and as she was driving, she had to pull her car over several times because the anxiety got too strong. On the way back from her trip, she was with her husband. She was 21, 22 years old, recently married, and as she drove back um, from the East Coast to the Midwest, whenever her husband crossed a bridge or went through a tunnel, she felt the same kind of anxiety attacks. What do you do when you hear that? Isn't it true when we hear those kinds of problems that immediately our assumption is that's a psychological problem, you need to call on the psychological pro, that kind of problem cannot be dealt with in the context of the local church? Isn't that the way our minds automatically function about these strange sorts of things? One of the common disorders among young women today, and maybe some in our midst struggling with it, wouldn't be a bit surprised if there were, maybe several, the problem of anorexia. I've dealt with numbers of cases of anorexia and bulimia. Dealt with a girl who came to see me who had lost 40 pounds. She should weigh 120. She weighed 80. And she told me she was overweight. At, a, at weight 80. She was skin and bones. And she said, with apparent conviction, apparent sincerity, look, I'm fat and I've got to keep on losing weight. She was eating perhaps a meal every second or third day. And she was jogging five or six miles a day and doing several hundred sit-ups a day. 
Otherwise, normal girl. Profess the Lord as her Savior, involved in a good church, struggling with anorexia. What do you do with that? Remember the very first case of anorexia I dealt with years ago. 16-year-old girl had lost 30, 40 pounds. And she said to me, I'm really fat when she weighed maybe 75. And I'm not hungry, although I eat once every three or four days. And I remember the level of my counsel at that time was maybe a little less than adequate. I said, you're not fat. You're skinny. And you've got to be hungry. And I think what you ought to do seems rather obvious to me. I think you ought to eat a little bit more. That was uniquely unhelpful. <laughs> How do you think through those kinds of strange problems or the whole range of more normal garden variety everyday problems that I struggle with and that you struggle with. When I feel discouraged, self-image kinds of problems, when I feel nervous before a test, when I clutch, when I'm worried about my future, how do you deal with all these problems? Is it not true that typically we assume that there's a category of problem called psychological to which the scriptures really don't speak? That's an assumption that's made largely in our evangelical culture, and I think it's a disastrous and a very wrong assumption. The whole field of Christian psychology, of which I suppose I'm a part, the whole field of Christian psychology has just burgeoned in the last, what, 10, 15 years maybe? There are more Christian counselors now running around trying to do something help-help than there ever have been before, and the numbers are increasing. The schools that are putting out biblical counselors or Christian counselors or people that are coming at problems from an allegedly biblical or spiritual perspective are on the increase. Our churches are being plagued or blessed, depending on your perspective, with a number of counselors who are holding seminars, who are dealing with depressions and anxieties and all sorts of things. The message is that we as Christian psychologists have answers that you pastors and you churches don't have, so turn to us. That's a very standard message. There's a whole new organization that's been in existence now for, I'm not sure how long, 10, 12 years, called the Christian Association for Psychological Studies, CAPS, C-A-P-S. I've been a member of that. I'm no longer a member. I've, been, I've, I've spoken at some of their conferences, and it's interesting, when you go to these Christian conferences on Christian counseling, what you often hear. I, I uh, recall attending a lecture in Dallas at their last CAPS meeting in 1984, I guess it was. I went to a lecture on anorexia that was being led by a Christian psychologist, and I listened to an hour's discussion of anorexia. The Bible was never referred to. God was never mentioned. The role of the Holy Spirit and change was never even talked about. I went to another lecture on primal therapy. You all heard of that? How many heard of primal therapy? Genov and some other things. Gestalt therapy is a part of that, really. Uh, inner healing can, can sometimes be a part of primal therapy. And I went to a lecture on primal therapy in which the Christian counselor, with the word Christian in, quote, in, in quotes, took the Lord's name in vain several times in the course of his lecture at the Christian Association of Psychological Studies as he dealt with primal therapy as that which Christians should be involved in. You go to your Christian bookstores and the books are filling the shelves written by people whose credential is not a knowledge of Scripture but a Ph.D. in psychology like I have. And because we have our fancy degrees from our secular institutions, we sometimes claim that we have answers that your church and your pastor simply cannot be aware of because there are answers to life's problems that are not in the text of Scripture but are found in psychological science and thinking. Is that true or is it not true? Let me suggest to you that much of what is happening in the field of Christian counseling, which is going to be affecting all of our lives, whether you're a psychology major or not, and most of you are not, I presume, but whether you're involved in this field or intend to be involved in this field or not, most of what's happening in the field of Christian counseling is going to involve all of us to some degree. Because Christian psychologists today are typically teaching a way of living that has an authority base that's other than Scripture. 
They're teaching solutions for living that, re- that, that, that depend on resources other than relationship with Christ. And they're talking about the context for change, which does not require anything to do with the local church. What I want to suggest in our few minutes together this morning is I want to suggest three areas of concern with the whole Christian counseling movement. Several ways to express myself here. I want to talk about three governing assumptions that I make when I deal with Christian counseling. By the way, at Grace, we don't call our program a master's in Christian counseling. We call it biblical counseling. The word Christian is a fine word, of course, but it's gotten cheapened in our society. Even sometimes the word biblical has gotten cheapened in our society. I've heard no counselor yet who's a Christian stand up and say, I'm going to now teach you an unbiblical approach to counseling or a non-Christian approach to counseling. Everyone's claiming a Christian approach. Everyone's claiming a biblical approach. And it requires increasing levels of discernment to recognize that which is truly reflective of the truth of God's word, that which truly deserves the label biblical versus that which maybe claims the label but denies it in significant ways. I make three assumptions as I try to develop an approach to counseling that I would like to use the word biblical for. The three assumptions have to do with three areas. The first area is the authority of Scripture over the field of counseling. Easily stated, to the level where it can be a cliché, the Bible needs to speak with authority in all areas of life. The Bible does speak with authority in all areas of life, and it's our job to bring ourselves under that authority. Easy to say, but difficult to do when you're struggling with questions that the Bible doesn't seem to deal with. Like, what's wrong with that anorexic girl? What do the scriptures say about that? The first area I want to discuss in a moment is the area of biblical authority over the whole field of Christian psychology counseling, more specifically. The second area that I want to chat about with you for a few minutes is the centrality of Christ, the necessity of Christ for all counseling solutions. If the Bible is sufficient to give us understanding of people, then Christ is sufficient to give us solutions to people's problems, the necessity of Christ for solutions to life's problems. Taking the position that when problems are properly understood, it will become evident that the difficulties really can only be substantially resolved through relationship with Christ. The brokenness of God's people can be healed substantially, not superficially, only by depending on resources which are found in Christ and no place else. That's my second area of concern. The third area of concern is the importance of the local community, the local church. The importance of the local church as the context for meaningful change. Too often we look at the local church as the place where we go to get our preaching and go to get our shallow fellowship and go to get busy and overworked as opposed to looking at our local church as a place where we can meaningfully impact other people's lives and where our lives at the deepest levels can be meaningfully impact. More should be happening in the local church than in any psychologist's office in the country. Three areas of concern, biblical authority, the necessity of Christ, and the importance of community. Let me talk about those three with you now. First, I want to talk about the the issue of biblical authority in the field of counseling. When you begin talking about that, you are faced with the very immediate problems to which I've already alluded. The problem being that as a counselor, as a person who is going to wrestle with the realities of somebody else's life, I'm going to be forced, I'm going to be required to ask questions that the scriptures don't seem to answer. I'm going to be forced to ask questions the scriptures don't seem to answer. It's possible when you stay behind the pulpit or behind a lectern, it's possible when all that you do is teach, it's possible to select the questions you want to answer 
and to leave a lot of questions that people are asking unanswered. But when you work with people one-to-one, you can't get away with that. When you work with people one-to-one, you find lots of questions are being brought to you as a counselor. Lots of questions are being brought to you as a friend, as a Sunday school teacher, as an elder in a church, whatever your role might be. All of us should be involved in meaningfully impacting each other. And when we meaningfully deal with somebody else's lives, lives, we're going to be involved in having to wrestle with questions that the Bible does not seem to directly answer. What are you going to do? How are you going to help that guy that has an urge to stick people? How are you going to help that person that calls you up in the middle of the night, that young mother who called me up a while ago and said that the frustrations that I feel are so incredible that there are times I go to bed at night just thinking about going into my children and strangling them. What do you do? Now, that's the bizarre, that's the unusual, that isn't the everyday, but problems like that are a lot more common than most of us acknowledge. And even if those particular more bizarre type problems aren't there, other kind of problems are, and we're not quite sure sometimes exactly how the scriptures address that. Do the scriptures answer every question a counselor needs to ask? That's the question. Do the scriptures answer every question a counselor needs to ask? Now, there are three ways to respond to that. Do the scriptures answer every question a counselor needs to ask? There are three ways to respond to that. The first way is to say, of course not. And this, by the way, is the standard position in, with quotes now, Christian counseling circles. The standard response to that question is this. No, of course not. The Bible was never intended to be a psychology textbook. That sentence has been said more than any other sentence I think I'm aware of in Christian counseling fields. The Bible was never intended to be a psychology textbook. Therefore, you're very foolish to go to the Bible asking it to do what God never intended it to do. It's silly to go to the Bible when you want to get somebody's phone number because the Bible doesn't claim to offer that information. You go to a different book. And you're not being compromising of your biblical faith when you close your Bibles and open your phone book. That's appropriate. The Bible wasn't intended to answer that kind of question. Another book was, so turn to it. The first response is to say the Bible was not a psychology textbook. There, therefore, when questions are asked that the Bible does not clearly, ad- clearly address, close your Bibles and open up your psychology text. When you're not sure what to do with your anorexic, it's pretty hard to find answers in the Bible to anorexia, right? Have you checked your concordance recently under A? You know? It just isn't there. Your knave's topical is no help. It simply isn't there. There's no place you can find where Paul says, I'm going to discuss anorexia with you right now. Here's a passage. It isn't there. So when you open your Bibles looking for help with that, you immediately feel a certain sense of frustration. But you notice in the library, there's a book that is entitled Anorexia, How to Understand It and How to Treat It. What you get drawn to, Galatians or the book on anorexia? Obviously, the book on anorexia, because it seems to deal with a question that you're directly asking and seeking answers to. The first position is the Bible does not answer the questions that counselors need. Therefore, let the Bible speak to spiritual issues, which it was intended to speak to, and let psychology speak to psychological issues, which the Bible never intended to address. A second response to this very same question, still discussing biblical authority now, a second response to this very same question, does the Bible, is the Bible sufficient to answer the questions that a counselor needs to ask? A second response is this, yes. The Bible directly and specifically answers every legitimate question. I hope you're all with me. I hope you heard every word in that sentence. The Bible directly answers every legitimate question. What does that do? That narrows the range of legitimate questions to texts that can be offered as direct answers. In other words, if you're asking a question the Bible doesn't answer, the question's illegitimate. Rephrase your question until you have a text you can appeal to. This is no more than proof texting, really. 
I was mentioning just last night to some friends that um, I read an article by a Christian counselor who would hold to the second view that the Bible directly answers every legitimate question, an article on anorexia, in which he said that clearly a comprehensive and adequate way of approaching anorexia biblically is to talk about the Corinthian passages where the Bible teaches that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and to bring to bear the truth that this girl is defiling the temple and to exhort her to stop doing that. And a whole article was written, that's Christian counseling for an anorexic. <clears throat> that's simplistic counseling for an anorexic, which has the appearance of being biblical because Bible verses are being used. Listen, just because Bible verses are sprinkled on some thoughts doesn't make the thought biblical. There's a third position that obviously I hold to. You're used to that, aren't you? People give three positions. The first two are bad, right? Third one is this is the goody, you know. Well, here's the goody, at least in my mind. The third position is this, that the Scripture provides us with a comprehensive framework for thinking through all the problems people have. The Scripture provides us with a comprehensive framework for thinking through all the problems people have. You're not going to find a text dealing with how to handle depression. You're not going to find a text dealing with your self-image problem. You're not going to find a text dealing with the specific urge that you're struggling with that seems uncontrollable sometimes. You're not going to find a text with how that pornography addiction you're struggling with started and exactly what to do about it, maybe. You might find some more direct passages about that, I suppose. But you're not going to find a text to deal with a lot of questions that I want to legitimately ask about my life and about yours. You're not going to find a text for that. That means that we're stuck with the responsibility to think. But we're going to have to think within biblical parameters, a biblical framework. Do we understand the teaching of Scripture well enough? Are we well enough grounded in what God has chosen to reveal in his word that it provides for us a framework for thinking through all the data that life brings? Let me suggest to you this. Never be afraid of what's true in your life. Never be afraid of whatever's happening in your life, no matter how crazy, weird, bizarre, embarrassing, shameful it might be. I'm not saying be proud of it, but never be ashamed of it. Never run away from it. Never, never resort to the, what is too standard in Christian circles, to resort to the coping mechanism of denial. I'm simply not going to look at that part of my life because I don't know what to do about that. The Bible doesn't speak to it. I'm not going to talk to anybody about that. There's a part of my life I have no idea what's happening in that area, so I'm just going to ignore it and try to get on with the Christian life. That's not getting on with the Christian life. The Scriptures speak adequately to everything that's happening within me. Don't be afraid of internal reality, even when it's crazy. Some time ago, I was taking a bath. I take baths fairly often. Three months ago, when I had my most recent bath, I was lying in the bathtub where I enjoy just kind of lying and reading and thinking. Good place to reflect, good place to get away from the phone. And as I was lying in the bathtub just reading a good book and having a nice time enjoying myself, my wife walked into the bathroom. She wanted to chat. And so she sat down on the sink and we chatted while she was in the sink and I was in the bathtub. Just had a real, <laughs> real nice time of marital communication. And in the middle of a very pleasant time of chatting with my wife, um, after maybe five or six minutes of just shooting the breeze and just having a nice time, my wife leapt up out of the sink and said, I forgot the laundry. And she ran out of the bathroom to the laundry room. And I remember, and this is crazy, but I remember lying in the bathtub and feeling an incredible wave of loneliness sweep over me. 
my wife has just gone to the laundry. She's not abandoned me. She's not left me. She's not deserted me. She loves me. She came back to me. And I lie there and feel almost to the point of tears. Now, what do we typically do when strange things like that happen? What do you do with that? Oh, gee. Incredible. You share that in your next discipleship group? No, you take that and you say, that's crazy. Listen, don't be afraid of whatever reality is happening inside. Because whatever's happening inside, when thought through and properly understood, will drive you to Christ. The Bible speaks adequately to reality. Never be afraid of reality. There's a framework for thinking that can explain whatever's going on in a person's life. Don't close your Bibles too quickly in trying to explain your, in quotes now, psychological problems. My first assumption is that somehow we need to learn what it means to approach the scriptures with a kind of confidence and the kind of skill that results in our being able to think through whatever problems people have. We don't want to do superficial healing. We don't want to dress the wound of God's people as though we're not serious. We want to deal with problems, but we want to deal with them biblically. Because once you close your Bibles, you've lost your authority. Everything from then on is conjecture speculation, and it's mixed up with a bunch of wrong presuppositions. The Bible's an unfallen document. It's inerrant. My second assumption has to do with, with the centrality of Christ. Let me use the overhead here for a minute and make a point. I've already mentioned the fact that so many times we uh, distinguish in our minds between psychological and spiritual problems. And I believe it's a very false dichotomy. The usual way of talking is to suggest that if you want to deal with a person comprehensively, you need a team of three people. You need the pastor for spiritual problems, the physician for medical problems, and the psychologist for psychological problems. The notion being that there are three kinds of problems, spiritual, physical, and psychological. I'd suggest to you that when properly understood, there are two kinds of problems. There are spiritual kinds of problems, different sorts perhaps, but all must be called spiritual, and medical, physical problems for which I'm happy to refer to the services of the physician or to a dentist or to whatever specialty is appropriate for that particular organic disorder. Where did our notion of spiritual versus psychological problems come from and what's the effect of it? Let me state a sentence and then develop it for a few minutes. I believe that the distinction, which is false in my mind, the distinction between psychological and spiritual problems depends on an inadequate view of sin. I believe the distinction between psychological and spiritual problems has emerged from a shallow, weak, inadequate, unbiblical view of sin. Here's what I mean. That, if you're wondering, is an iceberg. There's the water line. If I were to ask each one of you to do something, which I'll not ask you to do right now, but if I were to say to you, I want you right now to write down the last time you sinned, where's your mind go? I've done that with some classes at seminary, and it's interesting to watch the seminary students kind of go, huh, that's a toughie. Let me think. Back in 1981, yes, I do recall, I snapped at my wife ever so much. You know, it wasn't terribly much, but I did. Yes, it was less than God's holy standards. But I've confessed my sin, and I've been restored to unblemished fellowship for the past three years. Now, that's a little bit of a caricature, but not much. 
Where do our minds go to when we think about our sinfulness? Isn't it true that many, many times our minds go to that which is obviously sinful, that which is visible above the waterline? When you're navigating a ship, what do you see? You see that which is visible above the waterline in terms of an iceberg, and you recognize, yes, there's a problem. It's visible. Changing pens here. Behavior, sinful behavior that is not in conformity with God's revealed standards is sin. And we think about sin in terms of behavior that is not in conformity with God's holy standards. And that's accurate. That's true. That sin doesn't tell the whole story. What is typically thought of, I would suggest, is this, that people who have clear behavioral sin problems, we call them spiritually disordered. And we say it's the church which must deal with people who have clear behavioral sin problems. The man who's committing adultery, the student who's compulsively masturbating. The person who's doing that which externally, clearly, should not be done. We say, that person has a spiritual problem. He doesn't know what it means to live in the power of the Spirit of God to resist temptation. And all those words are correct. That's true. And we say problems that are above the waterline, the behavioral problems, are spiritual problems. But then that person goes to his pastor. And this has happened to me in my practice so many, 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 many times. A person goes to his pastor with some clear, specific behavioral sin problem. And his pastor comes up with a variety of biblical exhortations to get him to change. The guy doesn't change. And at some point, the pastor many times makes the decision, I think that there's more to this problem than meets the eye. Just as the navigator of the ship says, there's more to the problem than I can see. There's a lot of roots beneath that which is visible, but I'm not competent to deal with the roots because beneath the tip of the iceberg, we move into that murky area of psychological dynamics, the unconscious forces in the human personality that Freud put us onto, talked about motivations and Oedipal complexes and all kinds of, all kinds of mysterious things, which are the roots of the external problems. And these are called... psychological problems now what happens do you see the effect of this when you have a psychological problem we're going to go for help to the psychologist why because it isn't a spiritual problem what does the lord deal with spiritual problems we've bumped him out of his role We've said that for spiritual problems, behavioral problems, where the sin is clear, that's where you need to have the church discipline, that's where you need to have exhortation, that's where you need to have the teaching of the Word of God as to how wrong it is, and all of that I agree with. That's true. But when the person seems unable to deal with changing his life up at the surface, then so often we say, this goes beyond us, let's call in the local shrink. Remember a man came to see me for marital difficulties, and he said that he was simply turned off to his wife physically, at a sexual level, in a very strong way. He couldn't move towards her in an appropriate physical relationship. And he said, don't just exhort me to change. More is required than that. He says, the force that keeps me from going to my wife is much stronger than you understand. And because I was looking dubious, he said, let me illustrate. He told me to stand up. This is my office. He said, stand up. So I stood up. He was a big guy. And he walked over to me. I wasn't quite sure what he planned to do. He walked over to me, put his hand on my chest, and thrust me forcefully back into the chair. What did I do? I sat. He said to me, did you choose to sit? I said, no, you pushed me. I didn't choose to sit. And if somebody would have commanded me to not sit, I couldn't have obeyed the command. I was forced. He said, that's exactly what I feel when I approach my wife. I feel a force pushes me away. And when you exhort me to change, I can't do it. What do our minds go to? That must be a deep psychological problem. 
Let me suggest to you very simply, and it would take several hours to develop thoroughly, but let me suggest to you very simply that the problem of sin is not limited to above the waterline. That when you go down beneath the waterline, begin exploring what's happening inside of the personality, when you obey the Lord's commands to do more than clean the outside of the cup in Matthew 23, when you realize that the Lord's saying you first clean the inside of the cup, you go inside where people cannot see, you go to the matters of the heart which are the root of all that which is external, when you go to those matters, what you find is a deceitful, wicked heart. You find sin down there too. Not said simplistically, but you find it there. See, all of us have been victims in our world, haven't we? Anybody have perfect parents that never sinned against you? We heard a lovely song about honoring our parents. How right. How right. Difficult for some people because they're so mad at their parents for having let them down. Some people aren't appreciative at all. Their parents are madder than hoppers. Because their dad was never there. Mother was critical. When I hear stories like that, my heart grieves because that person's been sinned against. It's true. We're victims sometimes. But let me suggest to you that the core of our problems is not what we've been victimized. It's what we've done in response to being victimized. All of us have been hurt. I've had some pain in my life and so have you. The problem is not the pain that I've had in my life. The problem is I formed a determined commitment. I'm not going to hurt anymore. You hear that, God? And when you give me a plan, and you tell me to walk in this plan of obedience and to go honor my parents, God, to go towards them might hurt. And I'll be obedient to you, God, up to the point of pain, then I quit. Sorry about that. It's not where I've been victimized that gets me in trouble. It's where I demand protection from ever hurting again. That's sin. And the answer to the sin problem is found only in the person of Christ. The centrality of Christ, the necessity of Christ for meaningful counseling solutions. If we don't understand how sin works subtly, not just obviously, but also subtly in matters of the heart, we're not going to understand that that which appears to be a psychological problem is in fact a spiritual problem. And when the real roots of that anorexia, when the real roots of that resistance to going to parent, when the real root of that poor self-image is understood, yes, there'll be a real sense of warmth toward the person because they have been sinned against. But there'll be a moving alongside that person and saying, look, can you see how in response to the where you've been sinned against, for which I feel very badly, I weep with you as you weep. Can you see that in response to that pain, you've made very subtle, strong choices. You're demanding that there be no more pain like that, and your God has become freedom from pain as opposed to the God who commands you to walk in his path. There's a way that seems right. It really seems right to avoid pain. The end of the ways of life, I think. And God says, no, you missed it again, Crab. You're so dumb. But I love you. And I want to point out a path to you that's going to lead to life. And I say, Lord, you don't make sense to me. And he says, I don't require that I be understood. I require that I be obeyed. The real issues in counseling, if we're going to introduce substantial change, require repentance. And until we're able to understand the roots of wrong direction, we've not gotten to the core of the problem. When the problem is understood and definable as sin, then we see that Christ becomes a necessity as opposed to a nice spiritual tack-on. We ask God's blessing as we do psychotherapy. That's not biblical. Third assumption I want to make, and we'll close. Third assumption I want to make is the importance of community as a context for change. If our first assumption is that the scriptures are sufficient for understanding problems and what to do about them, if Christ is necessary for meaningfully solving problems, then my third assumption is this, that the Christian community, the local church, 
is God's place where he intends all these good things to happen. The family and the church, God's two institutions. The importance of community. You see, there are resources in the local church that don't exist in the counselor's office. I spent 10 years in private practice in South Florida. I don't believe that's immoral or wrong or sinful, but it sure isn't God's best. I help a lot of people. In private practice, you can help a lot of people. You can make a lot of money, too. Somebody has described psychotherapy as it's commonly done as the purchase of friendship. Isn't that horrible? It's too often true. And I left private practice out of conviction because I believe that the kind of things which people needed... I, I couldn't offer in limited private practice. I could do something. I can offer something. I'm a pretty good counselor. I really am. But these people needed resources that one person an hour a week couldn't provide. These people, in order for them to really get their lives together, needed resources like what it meant to move in relationship to God and worship. Where's that supposed to take place? To engage the deepest parts of the human personality in touching God. These folks needed instruction, biblical instruction. Remember, one counselee came to see me and told me after a while, coming to you is like going to church. All I do is get Bible lessons every session. That isn't always what I do. But sometimes I had to do that because they weren't getting Bible lessons anyplace else. Church is supposed to provide that, and good churches do. It's interesting how so many times in our communities, in our local churches, there are so many happy exceptions to this, but there's too many happy exa- wrong examples of this as well. In so many cases in our local churches, we don't have the kind of relational structure where meaningful change can take place. You know what a relational structure looks like typically? What I believe our relational structure, the way we get along, the way we communicate in churches, so often looks like is this. There's three people. I know you're marveling at the artwork. There's three people. And if you look just purely subjectively inside of yourselves, and as I look purely subjectively inside of myself, you know what I find? I find that there's a real deep sense in which I'm scared. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and what? Not ashamed. Nothing to hide. No, knowing that at their core, they were acceptable in their innocent state. Once the fall occurred, what did Adam do? Remember what he did? God came along and said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I was naked. So I hid because I'm scared to death. Scared of what, Adam? Scared that if seen in my real condition, I know what would happen, I'd be rejected. That's true. As sinful people, we're worthy of rejection. We're under God's wrath. And apart from his mercy and grace, we're in real big trouble. So down at the core of many of our beings, I would suggest there really is a tremendous fear of exposure. A tremendous fear of what somebody else is going to think. I'm not saying it should be there, I'm saying it is there. A tremendous fear of what other people think and wanting very much to manage the impressions we create on other people so that other people see us the way we want to be seen so we can be stroked and affirmed in ways that we think provide us with life. Let me tell you, what I just described is entirely opposite to the ministry model of relationships. The ministry model which says, I'm coming for the purpose of edifying you, Ephesians 4.29, I'm coming wanting to speak wholesome words that are designed to edify you, as opposed to that, what so often happens in our churches is we say, wait a minute, I'm not interested in edifying you, I'm interested in protecting myself from you. You might hurt me, you might not like me, you might reject me in some form, so my number one priority before I get around to ministry is to protect myself. So what do we do? We put on our layers, our defenses. We let people see what we want them to see for purposes of winning approval. And then what happens so often in church communities? 
we get together for fellowship, and all that happens so many times is we bump into one another's layers. And we have layer-to-layer fellowship. Folks, that's not koinonia. Now, the cure is not simply to take off all our layers and fearlessly proclaim who we are. That isn't the point. I'm not talking arguing for some kind of intimacy through total disclosure. That'll ruin a church in a minute. What I'm arguing for is rather than the motive of protecting myself from you, I must come to you with a motive of ministering to you. And when I come with that other-centered motivation, our church communities can start making sense. And healing can start taking place in our church communities. I was told I could go to 20 after, so I'm going to do that. Three more minutes and I'm done. Went to a conference at Westminster Seminary a number of years ago where they called together a number of Christian counselors who had done some writing. Jay Adams was there. Y'all familiar with Jay Adams' works? Very much worth reading. Jay's a good friend. A lot of good material. Bruce Naramore was there with John Carter. Some of you know the Naramores out in this neck of the woods especially. Henry Brandt was there. Gary Collins was there. Name familiar to some of you. And I was there. And these six men, whatever number it was, were gathered together for a two-day conference to answer the question, what is biblical counseling? Now, if you're familiar with the writings of these men, you're aware that there are a few shades of difference of opinion here and there. And to get these six guys together and to say, what is biblical counseling, is a whole lot like getting together an all-mill, pre-mill, post-mill and saying, what's the future hold? You know, there's just kind of... There's a few disagreements here and there. And the question was asked, what really changes people? We know it's the Holy Spirit, but what do we as human instruments bring to the interchange with people that changes people meaningfully? And one camp said, what changes people is relationship. What changes people is the fact that I provide you with a kind of relationship you've never known before in your life. That's what one camp said. Another camp, I'll leave you to put names to the camps. Another camp said, no, no, it's not relationship. That's important. We have to relate to people lovingly. But what changes people is the truth of God. When my brakes are not working on my car, I'm not going to my mechanic for his care and concern and relationship. I'm going for his skill and his knowledge of how brakes work. And when I say to him, sir, my brakes are not working, and he puts his hand on my shoulder and says, I'll bet you're scared when you drive. (laughs) My response is initially, that's kind of nice. He's a caring mechanic, you know, and he stands there and says, I'll bet it's really tough going downhill. You know, and I'm saying, yeah, that's true, but what I want is not your sympathy. I want your skill. Get under my car and fix your brakes. I don't know how to do that. The second camp says truth changes people. And it was my turn to speak. And I said, curse to me that both are rather important, and I would suggest it to you this way. What changes people is truth in the context of relationship. What takes away fear that motivates those defenses? What's the only biblical antidote for fear? John tells us in his first epistle. It's love. It's perfect love that casts out fear. It's the perfect love of the Lord, which has been shed abroad in my heart that I'm to minister to you so you're less afraid of me. Because I accept you as Christ has accepted you. And in the context of that kind of biblical community, the truth of God can penetrate to the very deepest parts. Three assumptions. As you read books on Christian counseling, as you seek out Christian counseling as the need arises, keep in mind three assumptions. Is the Bible authoritative? Is it sufficient? Is Christ preeminent in the counseling office? Is he necessary or is he just convenient? And is your model of changing people such that requires the community of God's people as a context for change? Let's pray. Father, we believe that you want us whole. We believe that we have life in Jesus Christ. We say that so glibly with such little understanding of what that means. We're accepted, we're heirs, we're joint heirs. 
We're going to reign someday. And even now, we're slaves. We've been bought with a price. We belong to a good master. Father, who we are in Christ is a staggering thought. And the more we understand that, Father, the more our problems will simply fade away. And yet our problems are so real, it suggests we don't understand it very well. Father, as we seek to go about living our lives, seek to go about building relationships the way you've designed us to, as we seek to go about impacting a world that needs Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you'll help us to live our lives in such a way that we're under the authority of your word, that Christ is necessary at the very core, and that we're living in community with your people as you've designed. Bless, Father. Bless this group of students. What a bunch of potential sitting in front of me. Oh, God, challenge hearts to realize that there's a joy, an incredible joy in serving Jesus and making a difference for eternity. Stir deep parts with the truth of who we are and what our opportunities are and even so much more fundamentally who you are, the great God to whom we belong and whom we serve, to whom be all the glory. We pray in his name. Amen.